ask uh, my audiences sometimes a question. Have any of you had an experience of freedom in the past? Get everybody to raise their hand. And then I tell them, you all got it wrong. None of you have ever had an experience of freedom in the past. And you will never have an experience of freedom in the future. The only time you have an experience of freedom is in the present moment. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Hello, welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another week with another fascinating guest. This week, I am super excited to have had the pleasure to speak with George Kinder. I have looked up to George for years. I was super excited to have a conversation with him today. And we get our musical guest, Rootub, performing an instant song based on the conversation I had with George. You will notice that during the song, the internet connection is not the best, but that doesn't matter because the song is still wonderful. Before we get into this episode, if you have two minutes, can you please do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcast and leave us a review or send this episode or your favorite episode to someone you think who would enjoy it. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with George Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, I am delighted to have someone who I've looked up for two years, George Kinder. For those of you who don't know George, he's an author, international thought leader, and life planning pioneer. He's been at the forefront of financial services industry for more than 35 years, spearheading a movement to put the lives that clients desire to live at the center of their financial plans. Through books, workshops, and speaking engagements, George has trained thousands of professionals globally in the field of financial life planning. After 30 years as a practicing financial planner and tax advisor, he founded the Kinder Institute of Life Planning in 2003. His three books on money management, The Seven Stages of Money Maturity, Lighting the Torch, and Life Planning for You, are considered foundational and essential work in the field of financial life planning for both professionals professionals and consumers. George, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. I thought we would talk about maybe a deeper sentiment or a deeper meaning that when we look at your work over the last 35 years has a consistent and profound message that goes below the numbers in the financial planning work that you've done. And it seems to be a consistent message around freedom. So I thought we'd start here, George. What significance does freedom play in your life? Well, it's huge, Sean. And uh, I mean, the bio that you read has a lot about the money work that I've done, but I've done a tremendous amount of work in other areas as well. And as you know, and I know that's why you have me, have me on the podcast uh, today, among other reasons, but the uh, freedom is runs through every book I've, I've written, runs through my life from the very beginning. And what has been exciting in, in my life is working to discover new ways that people can access freedom or demand freedom or create freedom in their lives. The thing, of course, I've known for is, is putting uh, together ways to make sure that money works for freedom. But of course, the question is always, well, what is freedom? And, and what is it for different, different people? There's a, a book. I'm rambling a bit here, Sean. But there's Go a for book, it. I've got a very strong first draft. It could be done in a, a matter of months called The Three Domains of Freedom. And I think freedom has, has three domains. I think that there's a, a very deep domain that we all know deep inside of ourselves. And it has to do mostly with the mastery of the present moment. 
And that's what delivers it. And there's a way to do that. And then the second domain of freedom is we've all got a narrative. You know, we get, we're going from this place to that place in our lives, you know, whether, whether it's relationship structures or building a home or whatever it is. We view it almost as an heroic journey to deliver that person that we want to be into the world. So that's the second layer of freedom. And that's a narrative layer going from the past to the future. The first one is just the present moment. And then the third layer of freedom is the one that we're struggling with right now. Maybe not as much in Canada, but I know you're doing it as well. The third layer of freedom is civilization. We we are meant to create a civilization of freedom for all, I think, for not only all human beings, but for all creatures, all species, all processes in the the world. And, And we're just really struggling with each other. And we've allowed, you know, people who have lots of power to command both politics and media. And what can we do? But we've gained tremendous freedom over the thousand, two thousand years of recorded history. Freedom to speak, freedom of the press, although that's questionable with who owns the press, but freedom of assembly, freedom to vote, freedom to choose. So there's a lot of freedoms there. And I think what's beautiful is that as a community, it's important for us to challenge ourselves to create more freedom for each other and for ourselves. So there's three levels. Present moment, each moment, you're free. Second level, your life is yours, man. You're free. And the third level is civilization is yours. That's a, a domain of freedom as well. So that's huge for me. It has been since I was a boy. Thank you for that. I like this idea of a present freedom, the, the freedom of our story or the narrative and the civilization. And, you know, when we reflect on where we're at as a civilization, I mean, Canada, we are not immune to the same discomfort that you guys are feeling in the United States. You know, we don't aspire to have a world like we are right now with all this discomfort. And it seems like these two things that you work a lot on, freedom and money, on one end can be such beautiful things that enable us to experience freedom the money, it can be a tool to do that. And then freedom itself can be very beautiful in the sense of we might not feel tied down to certain old narratives. But those two things, seeking freedom and seeking money, perhaps is the reason why we're at this dis- disconnect. How do we make sense of coexisting with these two polarizing almost meanings or definitions to freedom and money? So let me ask you a question. If you had to choose between those two poles, Would you rather choose freedom or would you rather choose money? Freedom. Absolutely. I don't know anybody who wouldn't. It's really about getting our our, uh, priorities straight, understanding what they are. It's hard because, you know, money's so tantalizing. Oh, you mean I can have this or I can have that? And you see people all the time who are much wealthier than you and they're dominating the world, you know, and so you never get away from that. So it, it's hard to resist kind of the craving that comes from that or the aversion, all the, all the internal stuff that twists us up. So the important thing is to understand choosing freedom. What does that mean to choose freedom? And where do we do it? And how do we want to be stronger about that so that the world that we see is the world we want to see? Is the world that we're, we, we know we're meant to create a great world of freedom and not one that is plagued with the threat of war, of, of climate catastrophe, of, of autocracy and dictatorship. Nobody wants that. Believe me, I've traveled the world asking people. Nobody wants that. I did a, a recording last week with James Victoria. He's an artist and he really believes in helping people find their inner wildly creative child, as he calls them. And we had a conversation how often this idea of financial freedom snuffs out that creative child. And I'm curious, when I look at your story, whether this is intentional or just the way of life, but from you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of these parts, but I understand you always loved poetry, photography, very arts-related interest. And then uh, you, you maybe won a competition in math and you become an accountant. <laughs> and, and then you enter the financial planning. You take a really heart-centered approach to financial planning. And now you're coming back to, I believe, releasing a few books in around poetry, meditation. It seems to be back to where you started. Along that journey, how have you been able to, if anything, I believe you have, but that's my assumption, but been able to 
avoid, I guess I'll use this word, the intoxication effect of money from snuffing out that creative side of George? It's such an important question, Sean. And, and you know, I could say dumb luck, <laughs> you know, I mean, because, you know, it is in some ways. Um, but I think the real thing that I was able to do, and I think one of the reasons I created the life planning movement is that I kept my eyes on the prize as hard as it was. And it is, it's hard for everybody. You know, we get into the world and suddenly, you know, gosh, my parents had a house and I, I can't afford one, you know, or they had a car and I can't afford one. And you get pulled in and then you're sucked in because different people are getting more advantages. They're sending their kids to better schools or something, or they're giving them greater vacations or something. And you go, oh, gosh, I wish I could do that for my kids. So we do get pulled in. And somehow I had this dream of freedom deep inside myself. And it is related to poetry and, and photography to the arts. It's related to meditation. I knew there was something that was profoundly deeper than what we hear on the news and we pursue in our life, that it's profoundly deeper than how we experience the world. And I knew that from childhood, really. And I began to ask questions about it very, very early on. You and I exchanged emails, and in one of those emails, a question you ask about how I got to meditation or mindfulness. What I realized early on was that there's something inside us that knows what freedom is. It blows your mind. It just, it's out of this world. It's so incredible. At some point, I got troubled by just how much uncertainty there is in the world, how much struggle, not just for me, but for, you know, in the news and for everybody. And I thought, well, that's not, that's not what I experience inside myself. You know, here I've got a picture of a, a road that leads, it leads into my house uh, here in Massachusetts. And it's, it's beautiful in nature. And in nature, when you're out in nature, alone walking in nature or walking with a great friend, you don't feel that complexity. You feel really at peace and you feel really alive. So I, from the earliest time, from childhood, I recognized that that was there. And I was determined to make it happen in my life. So even when I was doing tax returns for a living, imagine, I mean, the hours that you keep doing them and the deadlines and the tax code that you have to remember and all this stuff, I always kept my eyes on the prize, what it was I really wanted to do, who it is I really wanted to be. So I think if you ask that question, how was I able to do it? I did that. And now what I've tried to do in all the books that I've written is to provide kind of guideposts for people so they can identify what is their passion, what is their purpose, what is most profound for them, so that they hold onto that in times of trouble and they make sure they don't let it go. You know, George, that, that answer speaks to me because these conversations around we, we don't want money to guide us to do things that we don't want to do or jobs we don't want to take. And I think when some people hear that, they're like, oh, I can't quit my job. I, I'm not going to find this grandiose, purpose-filled job that there's only like three of them in the world. What I really hear you saying is when you sit with yourself and listen to yourself, you find this voice, yours was freedom, and we can bring that meaning to our work that we consistently do. And, and I see that you did that with your accounting practice. And I mean, the life planning field that you created is a testament to that in, in both fields that really we wouldn't have thought prior to the work you're doing, really the, the influence of bringing in the, the human side of those conversations. So I, I just appreciate that. It, you're not suggesting that people have to go and find this grandiose, amazing job that is 100% perfect for their, their meaning is we can bring meaning to our work once we unlock what it is, I guess, inside of ourselves. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I don't want to steal your thunder, but again, in our email exchange, you mentioned a poet that has influenced me tremendously. Do you remember that? Yeah. Rao Khan? Yeah, I think, I don't know whether it's that how I pronounce it. I, I've always pronounced it real, Ken, but... Uh, I'll take but, your word for it because I only heard for, about him from you, so... <laughs> okay, cool. Well, one of the things that I realized when I was kind of looking at how do I hold on to, how do I keep my dream alive? You know, the kind of the, the rhyme of it is, is keep your eyes on the prize. How do I do that? And I thought, I've got to find something that is so spot on, so right, so deep, so true, 
that I won't veer from it, that it, it won't corrupt me in some way. I won't be pulled into, as you say, these humongous jobs that are taking us away from freedom because of their complexity in many ways. And it's funny, Sean, I, I don't know if you'll find many advisors who will tell you this, but the people who kind of were most important to me in terms of guiding my life were people who had nothing and who felt comfortable, completely at ease with that. And I think the reason was they knew what freedom was. Now, you and I live, I'm sure, I, I speak for you as well as for me, we live complex worldly lives. I've been in a relation, relationships all my life and have kids now and you know, live in lovely places, that kind of thing. But when I was looking for who could actually teach me to hold on to what is true, I, I had to go to the simplest of people. And there was a poet named Ryokan in Japan. And I, he was a Zen master. He was, he was one of the five greatest Zen masters in Japan, one of the five greatest poets ever in Japan one of the five greatest calligraphers in Japan. So he had the visual arts in there as well. And he lived in a hut in a mountain and begged for his food. But what I saw in him, in his poetry, is a dedication to freedom in every moment, to living in the present moment, and to expressing it in some way. So I felt that even though I would live a complex life and be involved with technology and, and money and all these things... If I could understand what he was about, keep that simplicity and authenticity inside myself, I'd be fine. He was very important. This is a 19th century poet. I never met yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In a complex, challenging world, these important messages that you received from him, how do you like, live them? Yeah. Boundaries have been really important. <laughs> when I was doing tax returns for a living. You come up to April 15th, which was the deadline, and it's insane, man. I mean, people are coming out of the woodwork that you weren't expecting. You'd already plotted out your your two weeks or three weeks of, of the final three weeks of the season, and they're adding more and more and more. And you thought, you thought 65 hours a week was the most you could do, and you find yourself doing 80 to 100. And it's like, it's just crazy. So there are there are times like that where I remember uh, I got a call from my dearly beloved brother, Tom Kinder, and it was during tax season. And I was cooking in, in my oven. I had a chicken in my oven, and he's calling at the same time, and I'm trying to take the, the chicken out of the oven as I'm answering the phone. <laughs> and, of course, everything falls apart. And I go, oh, my God, Tom, I just dropped the kitchen on the chicken floor. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that, that's kind of what it's like in those moments. But what I did was I created fierce boundaries. So it might have been difficult in those two or three weeks. I made sure I didn't go nuts. I mean, that's always a temptation and always the, the risk because the stress is so high. But I made sure that I had really sweet time immediately afterwards. And I got back to a really manageable day where my priorities were right, where meditation was high. My creative output was strong. I was reading, you know, things that made me come alive. I lived more in nature. So I created the boundaries to make sure that that was more important than creating a huge business. I did fine, but I chose to live a life of freedom rather than get trapped by a large, a large business. Yeah. Such an interesting statement that, you know, if you go to business school, they talk about the ROI and the return or the return on investments and create these businesses. And one day, you know, you can have the freedom of retiring. And, <laughs> and what I'm hearing you say is avoiding the complexity of that big business and being at peace with yourself and being creative and meditating is where the freedom lies. And I, I mean, it takes just as much work and it is just as disciplined and you grow just as much inside yourself as you're growing this thing outside of you. So, I mean, what, what are, why are we here? I mean, isn't there this amazing creature that we are? Why shouldn't we be mastering that creature and that creatureliness? I ask uh, my audiences sometimes a question that I think is really a wonderful, it's a trick question, and you might have heard it as you were kind of preparing for this with me, but it's, I ask them, and sometimes it's an audience of a thousand, and I'll say, okay, have any of you had an experience of freedom in the past? 
And it's a, it's a trick question, but I, I want to see all your hands up there, you know, making love, walking the beach, making music, you know, being with your good friends. Okay. Have any of you had an experience of freedom in the past? Get everybody to raise their hand. And then I tell them, you all got it wrong. You all got it wrong. None of you have ever had an experience of freedom in the past. And you will never have an experience of freedom in the future. The only time you have an experience of freedom is in the present moment. So why would you construct these huge, complex structures that trap you in the future and the past? I mean, you can do that only to the extent, and, and be free only to the extent that you've mastered the present moment. If you have a mastery of the present moment, then you can build some complexity around that. And complexity is necessary in this world to navigate the world. There is certainly some complexity, but this freedom is more important. As you're, you're saying, explaining this, like the, <laughs> you only have the, mo- the present moment, it makes me think of a couple things. One is just this, the journey I've had to go on in understanding my own relationship with money and the one poem when I was looking through them that really stuck out to me was called, I'll just read it here. It's even if you consume as many books as the sand of the Ganges, it is not as good as really catching one verse Zen. If you want the secret of Buddhism, here it is. Everything is in the heart. And for me, it spoke to me because my money story had me consuming books, certifications, trying to plan for that future, like trying to create this artificial sense of control for the future and totally distracted myself from the present. So much so that I was missing so many personal signs for my family and kids. Money taught me a big lesson in being present, trying to be more present. And then when I read this poem, I was like, holy smokes, like that was my story. And, you know, it still comes in. But um, I appreciate this idea around the, the only t- present time we have is now. And you're right, our, our field, financial planning, until your work, we were obsessed with planning in 30-year increments. Right. And, and all that's useful. That's all valuable. And I use it in my own life. But it's a small part. And the important part is keeping that spark of freedom alive and, and deepening it, strengthening it. You can build it inside yourself. William Blake and, and Rio Ken were exact contemporaries. Blake was born in 1757. Rio Ken was born in 1758. They both died right around 1830. Blake had a, a, a wonderful saying. It's kind of bizarre and a little dark in a way and, and very much in the Christian tradition where he was a wild mystic. But his saying is, there's a moment in every day that Satan cannot find. Find that moment, he says. Find that moment and build. So it's a similar kind of in-the-moment kind of thing. There's another poem from Ryukan that's, uh, that I like that also is uh, related to money and his simplicity. In Buddhism, the image of the moon is, the image of, is an image of enlightenment. And one of the reasons is that the moon... I live on water, as you know. My series of poems and photographs is a series of five books called Reflections on Spectacle Pond. And I have a number of pictures of the moon in there reflecting on on Spectacle Pond. Well, the moon is an image of enlightenment, partly because when you look at it in like a dewdrop on a leaf, or you look at it in puddles of water, you can find that moon all over the place, everywhere. Part of the notion was that each of us has that spark of enlightenment inside of us, that spark of awakening. So Ryokan was coming home one day from a day of begging, which he did to gain his food. He arrives home to this hut, and I've, been, I've lived in a, a model of his hut. There's a, a teacher in uh, Washington or Oregon who has a model, and so I went and spent some time there. And it's as thin as a sheet, you know, the walls of it. But it snowed in the winter on the mountain. And so he come, he's coming home. And, you know, he goes in and he looks around. And whatever he had, which isn't much, is gone. He goes to, he has a, a window. And he looks out the window. And he takes out his pen, whatever it was, his calligraphy brush, and a piece of paper. And he writes down, looking up at the moon. He writes down, the thief left it behind. The moon at my window. You know, he was so at ease with whatever would happen around money, and yet he had nothing. 
So anyway, I, I, you and I live complex lives, but what we, we can learn a lot from someone who lived a really clear and pure and intentional life. And his passion was the present moment, which has influenced me hugely as well. I appreciate that story. And I think all of us can, I guess, attempt to embrace that present moment more often in such a distracting world. Because to your point, we only really experience the present. So I, I just, I hear a lot of noticing in your work, like or in your conversations, like you notice things, like you notice how you're feeling, you noticed that freedom and you sat with it to pull it out when you even started as an accountant or prior to that. I know you've been meditating for over 50 years, I believe. How has, if anything at all, your practice of mindfulness allowed you to take notice? That's part one. And and part two is, why did you start meditating 50 years ago? If you can recall, what were you seeking to f- to get from meditation? And 50 years later, what have you gotten? A lot of people start mindfulness practice, meditation practice these days because of stress. You know, it's a stressful world. We all have more than our fair share of anxiety in it when stress builds. And it's often sold as something that is of tremendous benefit to our mental health, to our longevity. There are studies that show that it increases your actual intelligence, your IQ, your um, SAT scores on uh, to get into college and that kind of thing. And that's it's all true, but it's a bit of a sales job because what mindfulness, and, and even the teachers don't really tell you exactly what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is a practice of mastery of the present moment. That's what it is. And I didn't realize that. You know, you asked, what was it? why was it 50 years ago? 50 years ago, I thought the world was a little off. And I felt something inside myself that was capable of experience rapture or bliss or freedom or great peace. And I thought, gee, it's so strange to have this, as you, you were describing it earlier, as this complex life versus a simple life. So I, I thought, this is really strange. I want to know the truth. And I was reading things in world religion, and I thought, oh, these people are talking about enlightenment. They must know the truth. So I thought, ah, just oh, that's what I'll do. I'll go meditate. And I found that it gave me inklings of truth. I think what it's given me, you know, now, 50, 55 years later, and I've, I've meditated a lot. I've meditated several hours a day during those, those years. But I, I think what it's given me you know, you can never master the present moment because it keeps changing, <laughs> but you can become much more present in it. You can have many more experiences a day than you used to, that kind of thing. And you've talked about this as you were talking about your own journey in this noticing. Mindfulness, a mastery of the present moment gives us more noticing. I often call it listening. I think that when we're with our clients, and you and I both know that world from being financial in the financial world and having clients. The greatest financial advisors, sure, they'll be great in their calculations, their spreadsheets and all of that. But the really great ones are great listeners. And their their clients know that in them. They experience that because they experience kind of a, a quality of mentorship or wisdom or just presence. So what mindfulness does, it's a mastery of the present moment, but what that's really doing it is strengthening and strengthening and strengthening our ability to listen. Listen both outside and as we close our eyes and follow the breath or whatever, listen inside. And that listening is what you're talking about. It's that noticing. So one of the great things that you do, I mean, it's so simple and yet, you know, it's so challenging to do. One of the things that you begin to notice as you develop a practice of mindfulness is you notice where you missed. You, you notice how you got pulled away, because you always do. And, you know, what happened? What was it that took me away just now? Try and stay with the present moment. You can't do it. So, so there's endless lessons of, of how did I lose it. And that is making you, that, that's giving you emotional intelligence, and bringing greater and greater wisdom inside of you. The, this book on um, on nature and poetry and the book of poetry and photography is a book of living in the present moment in nature, in an, uh, an acre and a half that I have in Massachusetts on a pond, a peninsula going out into a pond. And all I've looked at was, what is it to be right here, right now? 
And I think it's the most extraordinary thing we have. And, and nature is a great teacher of it. I've wandered a little bit of the field, but the more that you approach a mastery of the present moment or the more that you do mindfulness, the better you're noticing and the better you're listening. And that means the richer your life, the more free you are because you're not caught so much in your neurotic structures. That idea of this, the richer life of noticing and, you know, earlier you were saying, we were talking about, like, you know, everyone has their own stories. So this is just an observation. But we talked about growing these businesses and these complex businesses. And then you alluded to, in a way, it's similar when we do it to ourselves, like growing ourselves, looking inwards. What are your thoughts on this idea of doing the work, meaning like going inwards? Because I feel like at sometimes it might be easier to, quote unquote, grow the external business and avoid going inside our inner inner selves to take notice of what's going on because sometimes those deep dark waters of our ourselves could be scary and we flee and i speak from experience on that one um <laughs> what has your experience been on this idea of like just surrendering to the messiness that is in there to find that richness that you just spoke yeah. of one of the books i wrote the only book that's purely meditation is called Transforming Suffering into Wisdom. And it really is about that. And, and also my book on, the first book I wrote on money that started this whole movement was called The Seven Stages of Money Maturity. And both of them, I talk about how that work doesn't have to be as scary as it first seems. It's scary because we build stories around it. And they can be all kinds of stories. They can be stories about ourselves or self-preoccupied. I'm going crazy. I'm a bunch of schmuck. I'm a terrible guy. I'm, a, you know, I, you know, do all these things or I'm, I'm worthless. All, you know, all those kind of messages can come up, but they're different for each of us in different ways. And so in meditative work and in the work I've taught advisors in a transforming suffering into wisdom in the seven stages work, I've taught them this meditative practice of letting your thoughts go. So you get stronger and stronger at letting those stories go. You have to be able to do that. And that's hard. But then the second piece is, is to recognize that the stories are only scary because they get hooked to our anxiety. They get hooked to our jealousy, our fear, our envy, our anger, our desire. They get hooked to our, you know, kind of not false, but treacherous passions in some way or other. They get hooked to them. There's nothing wrong with those passions. There's nothing wrong with anger or anxiety or fear or envy or jealousy. What's wrong is if they get hooked to a thought structure and we keep going over them again and again, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you just said from experience, that's where it's a mess is where you just keep going over and over and over it. And you go, how am I in this loop? Why can't I get out of this loop? And so what we do is we practice letting the thoughts go and we learn to that the feelings, each of those feelings are just sensations in the body, ultimately. Where do you feel them? And go and feel their shakiness, their kind of untrustworthiness. But feel them as you might feel the belly of your, of your ailing dog, you know, of your creature or, of, you know, the, the chest of your child when they're uh, shaking with, you know, something. So you feel them with kindness inside yourself. And when you do that, you can have tremendously profound experiences, transforming suffering into wisdom. They can be explosions of understanding, or they can just be coming to a sense of peace through it all. So there are passages through, and I think the other thing, in addition to just a simple practice, is finding mentors or teachers that you can trust, and that have some, you can tell they have some emotional intelligence and some wisdom in them. And that helps as well. And a community. Yeah, it's such a, an important idea you have there is transforming suffering into wisdom. Ruthab and I, we collaborated on writing a, a money album of the journey of my experience, discovering my money story and coming to understand it more. And him and I have been collaborating over the last six, seven, eight months. And he is the musician who wrote all the lyrics on all the jargon mess that I was <laughs> saying to him, but it comes through his lens. It's wonderful. But there's this one song called ROI. 
And this one verse, I, I have to read it because it's like you and him would be, I see the eye to eye on this one, but it goes ROI, the freedom found within ROI. He sings it and it sounds much better than what I'm saying. But anyways, <laughs> life won't wait. So let's begin to invest in the here and now permission granted. Show me how to live in the freedom found within. Oh, beautiful. Wow. Yeah. You, guys, you guys are there, man. That's that's fantastic. Wow, what a great, what a great lyric! Yeah, he, he's he's wonderful. I think a segue here is I want to talk about your three questions, and you're known for these three questions, and I want to talk about it from a specific reason, not because you're known from him, because as I was navigating through my money story, there were certain things that I had to just I was forced to to take notice. I would like to say that I just decided to be Zen and become very mindful, but I was forced to take notice and and I'm glad that life went that way. But, um, your third question really, really hit me at the right moment when I needed it to this day. I often go back to that question and just think like, wow, the significance in that. And it's because my, my child was four at the time. I just thought, you know what? All those days I rushed to get him in daycare and I just didn't like live in the here and now for that little moment, just trying to rush him to daycare so I can go put on my financial planning costume and get to work and answer emails who people don't even, you know. <laughs> so your question helped me a lot. Can you, I guess, just share the impact you have seen from others on that question three? So maybe walk through the questions, but more so hitting on the significance of that third question, how you've yeah. seen it through others. Yeah, great. Oh, thank you. And you're going from one layer of depth to another, Sean. Just as, a, <laughs> just as a frame of reference for listeners who might not know what these questions are about, the context of them, we've been talking uh, so far mostly about the mastery of the present moment and how that uh, pr- provides a layer of freedom that's just extraordinary. But I mentioned early on that there were three domains of freedom. And the second domain is the domain I'm most famous for, I'm most known for, which is the domain of life planning. And where there, what I what I managed to do somehow was to put the person's life ahead of the money. And so many advisors got it because they knew that there was something wrong with just doing the money and just selling and just doing numbers and all this. So instead, really realizing that what you're attempting to do is to bring your client into a relationship with what they, how they want to live, who they really want to be, their, their freedom. And then you're using your money skills. Those are important, but you're using them not to get ROI, rate of return. I mean, yeah, you use them for that too. But the primary thing you're aiming at is freedom for the, your client. What is it? Who is it that they really want to be? So one of the things I'm most famous for are three questions. Now I've got, there are four or five exercises we use, but this is the one that's, you know, kind of most amazing to just ponder for a moment. So the first question is, it's like you win the lottery. It's suddenly you have, you realize you have all the money you need for the rest of your life. You, you might not be as rich, rich as you now the king of England, <laughs> the queen mm-hmm. of England, as she was, but you've got all you need. And that need is determined by you. You've got all you need for the rest of your life. What would you do? So there it's almost like you've won the lottery and you just go, okay, how am I going to live? But with the notion that your life is secure, you can live the life you want to live. So you lay it out, lots of things in there, and often material things, often important things. But the questions go deeper, deeper and deeper. The second question raises a question of your mortality. And here what happens is you go to the doctor and and you're feeling perfectly fine, but the doctor's been running some tests. He or she shocks you with the news that you only have five or 10 years left to live, somewhere between five and 10 years. You'll live at least five, but by year 10, you're gone. You don't know when that's going to happen. You know you're going to make it through five. So the question is, if you knew that, how would you change your life? What would you do differently? How would you live? Assuming pretty much that you have the resources that you have now, not that you have all the money. But you now have a time, a life sentence, only five to 10 years. How would you live? What would you change? And there that question about the your four-year-old might come up when you ask that question. My God, you know, I, boy, I want to get five to 10 years. He's going to be nine to 14. I better get focused in some way on delivering something to him that he'll remember. 
And so it's that kind of question sharpens your focus. The third question sharpens it even more and deepens this reflection on mortality. The scenario starts the same. You're going to the doctor and they've been doing some tests. But this time they really shock you with the news that you only have 24 hours left to live. And the question's not what you would do. I mean, too many people would go to the bar and, you know, or, or gather friends around and have a party, you know. But it's not what you would do. The question is, you're suddenly hit with that knowledge. And the question is, reflecting on all the things you have anticipated doing for the rest of your life, what is it that you, you, you did not get to do? Who is it that you did not get to be? What did you miss? You know, Sean, speaking, you speaking about this, man, I'm the same way. I'll go back to that question. I do the three questions several times a year for myself, even now after, you know, 35 years or so of working with them, maybe 40 years of working with them. I'll go back several times a year because every once in a while there's something new or a new wrinkle. I'm going through an empty nest syndrome. My kids are 18, going on 19. And so different stuff here at home. So I'll, I'll put, pull it out and look, what, what's there? I mean, this is just astonishing. Here we are. You and I are in this world of planners, of financial planners, people who have made their life planning out futures for their clients and presumably for themselves. But I've never met a single planner who comes to that third question and seriously reflecting on it says, I got it all. <laughs> I got it all. They might bluff for a moment thinking they do, but when they really reflect on it, there's something there that they haven't delivered on. And so the power of it is it says, it says to you, man, you couldn't die tomorrow. You just don't know. You, you better get, you better, you better get busy delivering on this. And so it stimulates that passion to be the person we're meant to be. Mm -hmm. And the great thing is doing it with an advisor, with a life planner, is they're, they're on your team. They're there with you, celebrating the question with you, empathizing with that question, teary-eyed with that question, whatever the emotion is there. And they're going, man, we can do it. Let's make it happen. Let's, let's, this is your plan. This is where you are. Let's make it. This is who you really are. Let's make it happen. It's so powerful. And I, I hope people, as they listen, really reflect on that question. And as we come to a close... I, I don't know if it's part of your question three, but I hear lately a lot of your work has been, I mean, it, probably 30 years, but your recent book, The Golden Civilization, has recently come out. Why now? Why is George focusing on this golden civilization? And what does it look like? And like, what does this mean to you? It's such a strange thing to have lived over 70 years now, Sean, and and seeing so much trouble in the world. I mean, I thought we were beyond that. I thought we were curing that. I thought we, in so many ways we were making the world better. And of course, a lot of the kind of the mythology that came out of the kind of the free market movement in the 80s was that we are making the world better. And through capitalism and through markets and through all of that, something went wrong. Somehow that freeing of markets, which has a lot of nobility in it, particularly if it's freeing for all of us, for people in general, but when that freedom means that large corporations or powerful people can accumulate more and more of the power to themselves, well, then it doesn't work so well because they've got other agendas. And so anyway, I'm, I'm getting off on my own political jag here, but I, I think civilization is ours. We are an incredible species here. I mean, it's just amazing. I'm meeting you in Alberta. My God, I can't believe it. I can't remember the last time I was in Alberta. And here I am. We're meeting each other. And I feel like we're brothers or, or you know, yeah. connected in some way. You know, it's so wonderful. And we're doing this with people all over the world now. And sometimes it's a group of 100 or 1,000. Sometimes we're doing it with. And, and we all know that it's one Earth. And we know the Earth's in trouble. And we know, gosh, this threat of nuclear weapons. I mean, come on. We're a species. What are we talking about here? Or this uh, threat of dictatorship, of taking over autocracy, of taking back our freedoms. As in America, the Supreme Court just took back a woman, woman's right to abortion. So my thought is that freedom is so important to us. It's not something we want to go back on. And 
it is so obvious to you and to me, and I think to probably 99% of the culture that we have, that we want a world that's filled with kindness, connectedness, vitality, laughter, great art, lots of fun, basic needs met, sustainability, all those things. You put those things together, 99% of people are going to say, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, yeah, let's do it. All right, so why don't we do it? And that was the purpose of the book, was to stimulate that, was just to say, look, this is, we let things get out of hand here because we get polarized. You know, one of the things that you don't realize, but polarization works for very powerful people. Because it keeps us focused on, I don't like how woke you are, I don't like how unwoke you are, and it keeps us focused on fighting with each other, and they just keep accumulating power and accumulating money. So polarization works for their benefit, not for ours. And it's time for us to come together around the things that we know, we love, and we share. Let's make the world work, and it bring freedom everywhere. I applaud you for having these conversations around the world on the golden civilization and encouraging local communities to to take part in this conversation. I have one final question before we invite Rudhab to the Zoom stage. And this is a consistent question I ask everyone. And there may have been themes or strands that you've answered already, but let's imagine you're at end of life, whatever age that is. You're somewhere where it brings you total peace. Perhaps it's looking at your pond or this, this background picture of your driveway is beautiful. And you're on the front porch looking out at this pond, this meadow, mountain, whatever brings you peace. And you decide to write your children's children a letter about what you learned on to have a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? I think in many ways we've talked about it, but I'll, I'll share it again. It's certainly important not to be foolish around money, to know how money works. But the most important thing I would want my grandchildren, my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren to know is the most important thing in your life is how you work. And the old phrase coming through Shakespeare and, and uh, long before him of know thyself is, uh, would be kind of the first thing. And I would reframe it to saying that knowing thyself really now, we now know that if you, you master the present moment, you will know who you are. And then you can use that as your, as your goal going forward so that the money serves that the freedom that comes from that. Mm. Thank you. Well, George, it has been an absolute delight to chat with you. We'll give Rudhub a few minutes. or ready to go. Okay. Let's go. All right. Here's the song. It didn't exist until right now. <laughs> <laughs> returns mindful times coexist show us signs simple life freedom found little things Sacred sounds, freedom runs through, freedom runs through, all we think and all we say and do, freedom runs through.
songs with freedom as a main theme and it's something i aspire to do more of so it was a real thrill to hear you just take that term and run with it beautifully done well you just wrote another one george (laughs) (laughs) collaborated we just wrote it yeah 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 beautiful beautiful yeah thank you guys thank you Uh, rudab that was awesome thank you for tuning in to the most hated f-word podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with George Kinder as much as I did. Before we head out, if you can do me that favor and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. Until next week, have yourself a good one.